Greetings, film pals. I bid you welcome to The Cinematic Crypt, a movie podcast hosted by Movie John's Old Sport and Classic Coroner, Rosalie Kicks, me. Each episode, I travel six feet under and pry open a coffin of one of my favorite Hollywood corpses and perform a post-watch examination of one of their forgotten films. Lend me your ears and listen along as I summon the spirits of Hollywood's dearly departed and uncover your next favorite film from the grave. Before we descend into the crypt, I will begin with reading my obituary, a notice of what I have been up to since we last spent time together. Goblins and ghouls, have you checked out moviejohn.com lately? In January 2021, we merged with a fellow Philadelphia movie publication, Cinema 76, and since then, there have been many exciting and thrilling changes. For one, we have introduced Movie John Podcast Network, which hosts nine movie-related shows. Besides Cinematic Crypt, you can also hear your favorite little gravedigger on two other Movie John Podcast Network shows. I saw it in a movie, in which my film pal, Ryan Silberstein, and I take questions from our listeners and go to the movies for the answers. And then there is Best Friends Forever, which I co-host with my BFF and filmmaking pal, Katie McBrown. Each episode, we invite you to our slumber party, where we gab about a flick featuring the heartthrob of the month. As for movie reviews, Movie John has you covered. Whether it is a new release or you are looking to catch up with some older flicks, we have quite the variety. Of course, I must recommend checking out the column Classic Coroners, which I share a byline with my morgue pal, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Our most recent article features an autopsy and dissection of the incredibly magnificent Claude Rains. Take a stroll over to moviejohn.com, and that's M-O-V-I-E-J-A-W-N. And while you are there, subscribe to our quarterly print movie zine. Our next issue's theme is Foreign to Me, so get it delivered right to your mailbox by visiting moviejohn.com shop. And make sure to sign up for our e-newsletter by clicking Movie John Mail so you never miss a flick. Here in the more sophisticated part of London's money belt lives a Verdelac. It's taken me quite some time to track him down, but finally I've cornered him in a very splendid flat at the top of this house behind me. What is a Verdelac? Didn't I tell you? Well, come with me now and we'll find out from the Verdelac himself. Mr. Karlov, what exactly is a Verdelac? A Verdelac, I think, is the Russian word for vampire. And that's what it is. Is it based in legend, or is it something created just for the film Black Sabbath? No, I think it's—I think it's actually the legend. I think it's the real word for it that they use for vampire, and of course it is about a vampire. At least the the third story of the series. Mr. Karloff, you've played many monsters and frightening and terrifying creatures. Do you ever regret having been typecast in this way? Good heavens, no! I think any actor who gets typed is very lucky. We're all typed. If you're a juvenile, you play juveniles, so you're typed as a juvenile. And if you get typed in a line of country that's... Or if you get known for a certain kind of part that is not too restricted, uh, I think you're very lucky. It becomes a trademark. As I proclaimed in episode 23, 
I will be making some changes here on The Crypt. This episode will mark a new beginning on The Crypt, in which I will start doing a little series of sorts. These series will consist of four to five films in which I dissect motion pictures with similar premises, but different cadavers. Now, before we get to our main attraction, my goblins and ghouls, I wanted to first introduce you to a new segment entitled in which I shall pay my respects to horror hosts from days gone by. As a horror host myself, who I must add is still on the hunt for a superb spooky name, I think it is important, Crypt Dwellers, to honor those that have roamed the earth before, and so each episode, you can look forward to your favorite little gravedigger paying tribute to a horror host, whether it be radio or television, from the past, and maybe present. This segment will uncover those that perform duties of the supernatural and macabre, or maybe even those that still do. A horror host is a creature of sorts that presents horror films of the low-budget or B-movie style, flicks that are often campy, but yet still bring chills and thrills. Often a host will interject and take breaks during the film to provide facts and trivia about the film they are showing. Some may even perform skits in theme with the film they are presenting that evening. Of course, there is absolutely no perfect specimen to kick this segment off with than the frightfully, fantastic, spooky, and delightfully morbid Vampira. Born on December 11, 1921, in Petsamo, Finland, as Mela Nurmi, it would not be until 1954 when she would transform into the late-night queen of darkness, known as Vampyra. Vampyra has been deemed television's first horror host. However, before appearing as a horror host, Vampyra got her start on the stage in a show called Spook Scandals. Howard Hawks had seen one of her performances and wanted to make her the next Lauren Bacall. Unfortunately, that didn't pan out, but she ended up working a mixture of odd jobs, from gutting salmon in a canning factory, working at a traveling carnival, and at the age of 18 decided to make the trek to Hollywood. It was at a costume ball in 1953 that television producer Hunt Stromberg Jr. took notice of this pale-skinned woman in a tight black dress with the shredded sleeves and low-cut neckline, jet black wig, and half-inch blood-red nails, which would later become her iconic ensemble and ghastly look. Her attire of corpse was inspired by none other than the devilishly beautiful Morticia Adams of the New Yorker cartoons by Charles Adams. Stromberg believed Vampyra would be the perfect specimen to host the late-night Saturday horror show he was looking to start on KABC-TV. The name Vampyra actually came from Mela's husband at the time, Dean Reisner. As for the persona, Nermi claimed to be influenced by the Dragon Lady from the comic strip Terry and the Pirates and the Evil Queen from Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. The station aired a preview of her show on April 30th, 1954 at 11 p.m., and the late-night program would then officially premiere as The Vampyra Show the following night, May 1st, 1954. For the first four weeks, the show would air at midnight and then later move to the 11 p.m. slot. Vampyra would show mostly low-budget suspense flicks, as many horror films at that time had yet to be released for television broadcast. I love the way that Vampyra would greet her guests. 
she would appear as if she was almost floating in a trance amongst a dry ice fog. She would get close to the camera and let out a piercing, shrill scream. She would then open the show with the hope that her viewers had a horrible week and then proceed to prepare a cocktail that she proclaimed would absolutely kill you. What I need is a vampire cocktail to settle my nerves. It'll not only settle them, it will petrify. Mmm. A vampire cocktail. You like it? It hates you. I've had several letters asking whether olives or cherries should be used in making my cocktail. Well, actually, neither is necessary, since they'd only disintegrate upon being put into the cocktail. However, if you want to use some garnish, you can drop in an eyeball. If you happen to have an extra one around the house. Vampire would spend time on the show in search of her pet spider, Rollo, who always seemed to be spinning a web somewhere, and her program was never short of ghoulish puns. She would often encourage her viewers to send her fan mail, but instead of autographs, they could expect an epitaph in return. Vampire would then end the program by saying, bad dreams, darling, and retreat into the misty fog. Despite her show being canceled in 1955 and the program only running for about a year on KABC, Vampira made a name for herself rather quickly. Her popularity could also be credited to numerous publicity stunts that she performed with the studio KABC. They would have her cruise around Hollywood in the back of a chauffeur-driven 1932 Packard with the top down. Vampira would sit in the back holding a black parasol. Which makes KABC one of the most powerful television stations in all the West. But even this mighty tower shook to its very foundations when a bizarre, offbeat, mysterious image was first telecast just a few weeks ago. And no wonder, the image was that of KABC's internationally acclaimed glamour ghoul, Vampira. Her theme song is Meet Me Tonight in Screamland. And her impact on televiewers has been fantastic. Now, three short weeks after Vampire's first scary airing, Newsweek magazine told the nation about her Saturday night to fret together. After six weeks, Life magazine devoted three big pages of pictures and story to Vampire. And worldwide publicity in French, English, and Australian newspapers and magazines is now being topped by a full-page spread in the Sunday edition of the New York Daily News. And all because of this sweet, lovable little key named Vampira. Young man, who are you? What is this? Won't you come in, Mr. Gobo? We can have a nice little... Ah! <laughs> step on the cat's tail. I don't see any cat. Oh, we don't have a cat. Uh, just his tail. <laughs> 
After the show was canceled, Mela retained the rights of the character Vampira and attempted to take the show to a competing television station. Unfortunately, footage from her time spent as horror host is mostly non-existent, except for a few clips here and there on the internet. And within documentaries that have been made, such as Vampira and Me and Vampira the movie. Despite the program's short stint from 1954 to 1955, the Vampire Show managed to set the bar in terms of horror hosts that followed her. There are some wild stories that still circulate to this day about Vampira from her affair with Orson Welles that ended with a son she gave up for adoption, to her friendships with Anthony Perkins and Marlon Brando, who was said to climb through her apartment window at night. She was even known to have a long relationship with James Dean. Some say it may even be the longest relationship if you count the seances she would hold to stay in touch with him after his death. Goblins and Ghouls, if you're looking to learn more about the famed horror host, I do have some reading material that I recommend you check out, such as Vampyra, Dark Goddess of Horror, and Vampyra and Her Daughters. A most excellent book that was just released actually this year is entitled Glamour Ghoul, The Passions and Pain of the Real Vampyra, Mela Nermi, penned by Mela's niece, Sandra Nimi. And lastly, the book that I used in my research today, Television Horror Movie Hosts. I will list all of these books and their authors on the Cinematic Crypt page on moviejohn.com under MJ Pods. You may also want to ensure to never miss a visit to the morgue, my goblins and ghouls, for my research taught me that our very own Dr. Carruthers shares Finnish blood with Vampyra and just so happens to be her long-distant cousin. Mwah. Let me introduce myself. I'm Mrs. Jones. Whew. Just plain Mrs. Jones. Just plain Mrs. Jones. Just like the Mrs. Jones who lives next door on any street in America. Say, Mrs. Jones, did anybody ever tell you that you look like, uh, uh... Vampira? Yeah. No. And now, our feature presentation. All right, film pals. Time to grab your cape and get comfortable with a cocktail. It is time for our regularly scheduled spooky program. Follow me, but watch your step as you descend down to the cinematic crypt. <laughs> episode will make our first entry in the series, Heavenly Mistakes. In this series, I will examine four films in which a grave error was made by the afterworld. The first flick I will uncover is the 1941 fantasy romantic comedy Alexander Hall's Here Comes Mr. Jordan, starring Evelyn Keyes, Claude Rains, Edward Everett Horton, James Gleason, and today's Corpse of Interest, Robert Montgomery. Right into the thick of a murder. 
is going on right now? Yes. Right here in this house? Mm-hmm. Who's doing it? His wife and the man she's in love with. They're drowning him in the bathtub. Holy cow. No, Joe Pendleton, Robert Montgomery to you, wants no part of that setup. That is, he thinks he doesn't, until he sees a girl named Betty. I didn't come here so much to thank you as to... because I had to see you again. But that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And here comes Max Corkle, Joe's lifetime friend and ex-manager, who thinks Joe cracked up in his plane. Joe is having a hard time convincing him he's wrong. Listen. Oh, what's the matter with your eyes, you big sap? I'm not Farnsworth. I'm Joe Pendleton. You're Joe. You're nuts, Mr. Farnsworth. Wait a minute, I'll prove it to you. You always hit that note sour. Joe, it's you, Joe. Robert Montgomery, a fellow named Joe you'll be tickled to know. Of course the film involves murder, my goblins and ghouls. You didn't think this would just be a mushy romance, did you? Robert Montgomery was born Henry Montgomery Jr. on May 21st, 1904 in Fishkill Landing, New York. He would later change his name to Robert after he worked on his first film entitled This is College in 1929 with George Kukar. Robert, who often went by Bob, was born of privilege. His father was the president of a New York rubber company, but unfortunately, tragedy struck in 1922 when his dad committed suicide by jumping off the Brooklyn Bridge upon realizing the family fortune was gone. Bob would find himself settled in New York City, attempting to make it as a writer and an actor. He first started his career on the stage, which is how he met George Kukar, which would later lead to an MGM contract. Robert not only acted, he also hosted the Suspense radio show program in 1948 for CBS. Suspense is a radio drama program that was known as Radio's Outstanding Theater of Thrills. Suspense is a terrifyingly great program, my fellow crypt dwellers. Many of the episodes are available on YouTube and feature the likes of Boris Karloff, Bela Lugosi, Lucille Ball, Orson Welles, and Peter Lorre, just to name a few. And now, Autolite and its 60,000 dealers and service stations present... Suspense! Tonight, Autolite brings you Mr. Robert Montgomery in... The Thing in the Window, a suspense play produced and directed by Anton M. Leder. I recently listened to this specific episode, and I highly recommend it, Goblins and Ghouls. It is sure to send a chill down your spine. Robert racked up 65 screen credits across television and film. He would also go on to direct motion pictures as well, five in total. Something I quite enjoyed learning about Robert while I was conducting my research, Crypt Dwellers, is during film productions, Robert loved to question the crew and specific departments. He was intrigued with the world of filmmaking and was often described as eager and willing to take suggestions. 
which led him going on to direct his first credited picture, the 1964 film Lady in the Lake. This is quite a fascinating picture, goblins and ghouls. This film stars Robert Montgomery and Audrey Totter. Audrey, you may remember from episode 11, in which I uncovered the corpse of Arch Obler. Audrey was not on screen in that picture, but instead played the menacing voice of Karen. Lady in the Lake tells the story of a female editor of a crime magazine who hires Philip Marlowe to find the wife of her boss. Robert of Corpse plays the detective Marlowe. And what is rather fascinating is the way in which he chose to shoot the picture. Throughout the entire film, Robert's character is only seen in reflection of mirrors or windows. The narrator speaks directly to the audience. This first-person technique was only used prior to this for a few minutes, not an entire picture, like Robert Montgomery did. My name is Marlowe, Philip Marlowe. Occupation, private detective. You know, somebody says, follow that guy. So I follow him. Somebody says, find that female. So I find her. But some cases, like this one, kind of creep up on you on their hands and knees. And the first thing you know, you're in it up to your neck. Right now, you're reading in your newspapers and hearing over your radios about a murder. They call it The Case of the Lady in the Lake. It's a good title. It fits. What you've read and what you've heard is one thing. The real thing is something else. There's only one guy who knows that. I know it. Robert brought in the film 19 days ahead of schedule. Quite impressive for a directorial debut. I highly recommend checking out this crime thriller noir, along with another noir picture that he directed soon thereafter in 1947, Ride the Pink Horse, which is now available from the Criterion Collection. In terms of his acting career, Robert was first exclusively in comedic roles, one of my favorites being the 1941 Alfred Hitchcock picture, Mr. and Mrs. Smith in which he co-starred alongside Carol Lombard, who you may recall from episode 14, My Goblins and Ghouls, in which I uncovered the film Supernatural. It was, however, in 1930 when he would take on his first dramatic role, The Big House. I recently caught on the Turner Classic Movie Channel, Night Must Fall, another thrilling dramatic film that he was in in 1937. He played the role of Danny, a man hired to assist an elderly woman with her large estate, but it is clear he has other fiendish motives. He co-starred with Rosalind Russell, and it was a most excellent picture, My Goblins and Ghouls. Montgomery received a Best Actor Oscar nomination for his portrayal as Danny. It's exciting, isn't it? Something's never happened to you before. Being alone at this time of night with a chap like me. You're not frightened. You're excited. I can tell you are. Your eyes are shining. And you've got color in your cheeks. And your heart's beating. Isn't it? Don't. And I'm frightened of you. Robert was married twice. Both women coincidentally named Elizabeth. And he would have three children the famed Elizabeth Montgomery of the Bewitched TV series in which she played Samantha, and Robert Montgomery Jr., who also had a brief career in acting. His third child would sadly pass away at the age of 14 months due to spinal meningitis. 
Bob lived a full life, living until the age of 77 years old, and would succumb to cancer on September 27, 1981. His body was cremated, and the ashes were given to his family. Here Comes Mr. Jordan is based on the play Heaven Can Wait. A title card is first presented that reads, We heard a story the other day from a fellow named Max Coracle, as fantastic a yarn as was ever spun. You'll say it couldn't have happened. Anyway, this one was so fascinating, we thought we would pass it on to you. It begins in Pleasant Valley. We first meet Robert Montgomery's character, Joe Pendleton, in the middle of a boxing ring. It is May 11, 1941. Joe is quite an interesting fella, whose in-ring name is the Flying Pug. He was also affectionately given this name for his love of flying. In fact, it is this particular hobby that would cause his demise. Or should I say, accidental demise. Leave that plane of yours up here and take the train down with the rest of the gang. Will you do that? Ah, what can happen to me when I got my lucky sacks along? The way we're set now, we're within two weeks of the greatest fight of your life. I'm on our way to the championship. Why take chances? Fine thing. Me, known as the Flying Pug. The papers will all say, Flying Pug takes train. Fine thing. Oh, Joe. I'll meet you in New York at the gym tomorrow. And how about the flying? How about a little of your favorite tune? Not today. In witnessing Joe fly a plane, let's just say I would not be too keen on joining him, my fellow crypt dwellers. He doesn't seem to keep his eyes on the road, so to speak. As he is flying, he is playing his saxophone, a rather unfortunate rendition of The Last Rose of Summer. I use the word playing loosely, as he may be an expert in the boxing ring, but in terms of operating a musical instrument, he clearly has some work to do. While in the air, one of the cables from the outside of the aircraft severs, causing the plane to go down. Fortunately, or what would become unfortunately, his soul is rescued from an officious angel that goes by the number 7013, played by the quite familiar character actor, Edward Everett Horton. Don't waste your time listening to this comic. He's got a screw loose someplace. You know what he keeps telling me? <laughs> he keeps telling me I'm dead. And you most certainly are, otherwise I shouldn't have taken you. You hear that? I'm afraid you are. Ah, uh, what? Dead. Luckily, the angel's superior, a Mr. Jordan, played by the always calming cool as a cucumber, Claude Rains, sets the record straight. In reviewing the records, it is found that Joe's death was indeed an error. He was supposed to live for another 50 years. I must mention here, my goblins and ghouls, I truly do love Claude in this role. He is perfectly cast as the conscientious afterlife record keeper. He decides this wrong must be made right, and that means returning Joe to his body. Unfortunately, Joe's body has already been cremated, and since there is no more body to return to, Mr. Jordan decides he will simply need to take over a newly dead corpse. You can't go shoving just anybody's body off on me. No, not on your life. Mr. Pendleton, please. If Mr. Jordan says he'll get you another body, he'll get you another body. Every bit as good as your own, if not better. There isn't any better. I put in 10 years getting that body in the pink. Just because you guys fumbled the ball is no but reason. Joseph, it's gone. Your body doesn't exist any longer. But that isn't my fault. You guys can do anything. Go ahead, do your stuff. We shall, Joseph. You shall have your choice of a thousand bodies, all excellent specimens. A thousand bodies? 
Mr. Pendleton, think of that. Yeah, I am thinking about it, and I say no dice. I don't want anybody's body, I want my body. Oh, don't be so fussy. Your body, after all, what is it? Just a physical covering, that's all. Worth chemically, 32 cents. Not mine, it was in the pink, I tell you. Oh, dear. Shall we get started? Now, wait a minute, let's understand one another before we start running around. Joseph, I promise you we'll keep looking until we find the body you like. Now, that's fair enough, isn't it? Well, I don't want any more than's coming to me. I just want what I was and what I was going to be, no more, no less. But I expect you to make good, Mr. Jordan. I'll do my best. Come along. I warn you. You may be just wasting your time. I have a lot of that. Goodbye, Mr. Pendleton. Good luck. That sounds mighty weird coming from you. Oh, how I love how they speak of this new body. A physical covering worth 32 cents. Or it's just like donning a new overcoat. How splendid. Now something to keep in mind, my goblins and ghouls, is that despite Joe being placed in a new body, something important to note is that he will still be himself, which is why Claude is adamant that it will simply be like stepping into a different skin. Joe, of course, isn't going to just take any outer shell. He wants to procure a specimen that is physically fit. He was in the pink. A phrase that we become quite familiar with, my goblins and ghouls, as he uses it nine times throughout the film. Joe, we've made 130 stops. We made a raft of them, all right. Now, I know how you feel about a perfect body, but I've offered you the cream of last week's crop and you've turned up your nose at the lot. You know there wasn't a decent physique in the whole bunch, Mr. Jordan. You can't palm off a second rater on me. You gotta remember I was in the pink. That is becoming a most obnoxious color, Joe. Don't mention it again, please. Okay. Next stop, a pretty snazzy place. Who do we size up here? The owner, Bruce Farnsworth. Now look here, Mr. Jordan, this isn't just another one of those things, is it? You'll find this most interesting, Joe, by far the most interesting we've looked into yet. Okay, I don't want you to think I'm not trying to play ball. So this begins the hunt for a new body. What I love about this whole sequence of events and this adventure is how patient Mr. Jordan is. As Joe turns down several ripe, and acceptable candidates. Mr. Jordan isn't phased at all. He is committed to finding Joe the one. One of the options happens to be Mr. Bruce Farnsworth, a wealthy, crooked banker that lives in a sprawling mansion. When Mr. Jordan and Joe enter the scene, Mr. Farnsworth is just about to be murdered in the bathtub by his wife and secretary, Tony Abbott. Joe, of course, is shocked by this turn of events, whereas Mr. Jordan, well, he's just cool and collected. It's just another skin covering dropping dead on another day. Initially, Joe is not too pleased with the selection, claiming that the body has to be run down from all the booze and poor health, not making it a prime vessel for him to once again become a boxing champion. However, I believe it is Claude's calming and soothing demeanor that convinces Joe otherwise, as there is an innocent woman in the mix. A woman by the name of Miss Betty Logan, played by Evelyn Keyes. Mr. Jordan informs Joe that Betty's father was slandered by Farnsworth in a deal involving worthless stocks, causing her father to land himself in jail. Mr. Jordan plants the seed in Joe's head that maybe if he were to stay, he could help her out with her troubles and make things right. Before I take a step like this, I gotta do some figuring. Make up your mind. Look, what if I did it? Only temporary. Suppose I was Farnsworth just for a little while until after I helped that kid out. Could I do that? If you wish it. 
And after you got me out of Farnsworth's body, you'd have to get me a body that would suit me. Is that clear? Quite clear. Okay, that's a deal. Come on, Mr. Jordan, we gotta hurry. Crypt dwellers? I seriously love how this whole plot is truly an adventure for a new body. It's so thrilling. So Joe inevitably becomes Farnsworth. I'm sure you can imagine the shock as he descends down the stairs and it is first seen by Bruce's wife and secretary. He's literally a dead man walking. Something interesting to note is that on screen, we see Robert Montgomery or I should say Joe, but that everyone else sees him as Bruce Farnsworth. So despite hearing Joe's voice, everyone else is hearing him as Bruce, which allows him to move about undetected. All of this is confirmed so confidently by Mr. Jordan. I love how much Mr. Jordan believes in Joe. He does not allow Joe to flounder or spend time fretting. He tells him he will get more terrific by the minute. He just has to get out there. Mr. Farnsworth, is anything wrong? Oh, please answer me, sir. Go ahead, Joe. Okay, I'll be out in a minute. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. There. Now, what he heard was the voice of Farnsworth. It was, eh? Mm -hmm. And when you open that door, what he'll see will be Farnsworth. Uh, Mr. Farnsworth? Uh, there's a Miss Logan here to see you. Yeah, I know. I beg your pardon, sir? Well, uh, I mean, uh, I'll be right out. I'll be right down. Look, you're kidding me. I wouldn't fool anybody. You fool everybody. Open that door. It does not take Joe terribly long to make things right for Miss Logan, which, of course, leads to a bit of an infatuation between the two, despite Mr. Farnsworth being married to a murderer. It is, however, his crush on Miss Logan that makes him interested in sticking around a bit longer in Bruce's body, despite number 7013 finding a body that would be most perfect for Joe to re-enter the boxing racket. He doesn't want to lose Miss Logan, passing up this superb corpse. Joe has other plans. He decides to hang around a bit longer, and well, while he's sticking around, he might as well get Bruce's body in the pink. Joe requests his old manager, Mr. Corkle, to visit him so that he can get his body back in shape. Joe utilizes his saxophone as a way to convince Max that it is indeed him, Joe Pendleton. Having trouble, Joe? Mr. Jordan, I certainly am glad you showed up. I'm having plenty of trouble. I can't get anything through this guy's head. Tell him what happened, will you? This is Max Corkle, my manager. You know, the guy that did me up good. And this is Mr. Jordan. You know, those collector fellas I was telling you about. Well, that's his department. He's in charge, see? Is there somebody with us? Yeah, Mr. Jordan. Oh. Pleased to meet you, Mr. Jordan. Oh, I forgot. You can't see him. Well, maybe if I had a good stiff drink... You can't see him because you're not dead yet. Oh. Well, <laughs> I guess uh, you two fellas have got... A uh, lot of business to talk over, so I'll be mooching along. Oh, no, you don't. Mr. Jordan, I gotta get this through to him. He's a swell guy. He's my manager. I'd be lost in the ring without him. Make him understand, will you? Just let him see you for a minute. You can do it yourself, Joe. Try. I can, eh? I'm gonna make you understand if I have to pound you into a jelly. How would I know about Joe if I wasn't Joe? And listen to this. You got 40% of me. Yes? Well, thanks. 
Since when did you give me that? Since that night in Astoria when you saw me put away Butcher Boy McKenzie. You said I had color. You said I had what they wanted. And how's your sister Rosie and the three kids? Have the twins gotten over the measles yet? So who are you anyway? I'm Joe. You're Joe. This is Farnsworth's body because you burnt mine, you big stiff. Wait a minute, I'll prove it to you. You remember this? Hey, that's Joe's. I gave it to him. Poor Joe. Where'd you get that? That's mine, I tell you. Wait, I'll play your favorite tune for you. You always hit that note sour. Joe, it's you. All of the boxing talk has Bruce's wife and secretary rather fit to be tied. They didn't care for Bruce before, but this new Bruce is on a whole other level. First, he clears Miss Logan's father, which meant losing a large sum of money, and now he is looking to enter the world of boxing. They truly believe Bruce Farnsworth has lost his mind. As for Joe, he believes everything is going smoothly. He has convinced his manager, Max, of who he is, and Max has agreed to set up a match of the century. Of course, everything changes when number 7013 stops by. What's the idea of popping up like this? I thought I saw the last of you. I had thought so, too. As you know, I went through Hades to make good my error. I hoped I'd had the last of it. Well, what's the idea? What's the matter? It's very distressing news, Mr. Pendleton. You can't use Farnsworth's body anymore. Just what do you mean? Just what I say. But you're crazy. You told me I was going to be champ. But not with Farnsworth's body. Why not? Well, it wasn't meant to be that way. Why not? Don't keep saying why not. You must just believe me. I believe nothing. You can't pull this on me. Why don't you guys get together for once? Mr. Pendleton, you haven't much more time to stay in Farnsworth. Joe is absolutely beside himself. He has just started to get this current body in the pink for a pending fight arranged by Max. He has fallen head over heels for Miss Logan, and now they are looking to pull the rug right out from underneath him again. Fortunately, before Joe makes a heavenly exit once more, he does have an opportunity to have a final word with Miss Logan before his departure. If someday somebody came up to you, it might even be a fighter, and acted like he'd seen you someplace before, you'd notice the same thing in him. Even if you thought you did, you'd give him a break. Because he might be a good guy. I don't understand you. I'm just crazy. Don't mind me. I, I never want to lose you. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm never gonna. With Joe protesting to leave, of course, Mr. Jordan shows up to be the voice of reason, explaining to Joe that even if he leaves this body, he needs to let destiny take its course meaning that if it is in the cards for him to end up with Miss Logan and be a boxing champion, he will. Mr. Jordan is such a kind soul, as he also reiterates to Joe that he will stand by him until they find the perfect shell for him to call his new body. None of this soothes Joe. He does not want to leave, attempting to dash away from Mr. Jordan. Unfortunately, when he walks out the door, he is shot by Mr. Farnsworth's secretary and is now once again a ghost. Chaos ensues when Max shows up looking for Farnsworth and learns that he is now missing. Despite the secretary informing Max that Mr. Farnsworth changed his mind about the boxing match, Max isn't buying it. He instead heads to the police and pays a visit to the detective division of the Missing Persons Bureau. 
For four days now, no sign of him. They can't get me. He's disappeared. And I think it's foul play, because Mr. Farnsworth wants to see me. And if he could, he would. Now, what I want you to do is to check every hotel, railroad, hospital, and morgue. Speaking of morgues, I think it is time, crypt dwellers, for our spooky intermission of sorts. Let's venture to the morgue, shall we? To chat cadavers with my fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers. Together, we shall slice open and examine character actor Claude Rains, an actor who specialized in playing eccentric and unusual people. Let's all go to the Evening, Dr. Carruthers. How are you doing on this fine, moonlit night? Oh, I'm splendid. Spring is in the air, and so I'm enjoying spending my time indoors. I think it's going to rain this evening. How about you? How are you doing? I've missed seeing you here. Yeah, it's been so long since I made a trip to the morgue, and I can't even begin to express to you how much I've missed this place. It honestly is bringing chills to my bones to be hit with the smell of embalming fluid once more. It's thrilling. Oh, boy. There's really nothing like the pure science of formaldehyde. Who are we wheeling out tonight? Well, I'm quite excited because tonight's corpse is a real treasure. Tonight, let's spend some time with the dearly departed, the one, the only, Claude Rains. You're new, aren't you? I am, yes, sir. My first trip, I was put on only this morning. I thought so. Overzealousness, out for record collections. This happens right along with the inexperienced. Really? Oh, dear. Well, it wasn't in the cards. Nothing can happen to me when I got my lucky sax along. And how did he manage to wangle that thing up here? Mr. Jordan, sir. On Pendleton Joseph, the official record says both his parents are happily withdrawn and awaiting his arrival. Joseph is scheduled to join them the morning of May 11th, 1991. 1991? That's 50 years from now. What did I tell you? It seems you were a little premature. 50 years to go yet? You certainly pulled a boner this time. Mr. Pendleton, I feel I owe you an apology. Well, I tell the world you do. Well, never mind. We all make mistakes. There's no harm done. Just forget about it and take me back. Take you back? Naturally, take him back. Return him to the body out of which you so indiscreetly snatched him. Oh, what a lovely specimen to mark our reunion with. Claude Rains was simply divine. I'm kind of shocked with myself that I have yet to uncover him on the cinematic crypt, so I'm pleased as punch to have him join us tonight. Me too. Claude Rains has been memorable in so many roles. He is talented and has a very definite air about him that I find quite pleasing. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to learn that over the course of his career, he was nominated four times for an Oscar, but all for supporting roles. And although he may be remembered most for some of his charming, charismatic, and well, sinister character roles, I do believe that films such as The Invisible Man, The Unsuspected, and Strange Holiday prove that he could do more than just play second fiddle. So I'm sure at some point or the other, I will be digging Claude up again, 
in the future. But until then, let's slice him open and take a look around, shall we? Why, yes. Scalpel, please. We shall begin with discussing five characteristics that made this particular corpse a character. Number one, his patented baritone voice. Number two, a calm, collected, and composed presence. Number three, his sophistication. Number four, a distinctive and impressively memorable side-eye. And finally, number five, a mischievous yet jovial personality. I think that you will find that once we really investigate the work he has done, all these characteristics are quite unforgettable. Yes, Claude truly was a marvel of the silver screen and has given such memorable performances. What did you think of his role in Here Comes Mr. Jordan? Farnsworth is the only one who can help her, Joe. And he's dead. But you can be Farnsworth. What do you mean? I don't get it. It's quite simple. You mean you want me to be Farnsworth and have a swell girl like that hate me? But you'd make a very different Farnsworth. Spiritually, there'd be no change in you. Yeah, but I wouldn't be myself. A guy's no good if he isn't himself. Joe, you'll always be yourself. You'd merely be using Farnsworth's physical covering, like donning a new overcoat. <laughs> That'd be a pretty good overcoat. That'll last me for 50 years. But inside that coat, you'd still be Joe Pendleton, thinking and acting and feeling. Yeah, but that overcoat, that'll be Farnsworth. That's what she'll see. He's a rat. She'll think I'm a rat. Maybe at first. But eventually, she'd see the soul of Joe Pendleton, because that is never lost. That will always shine through Joe. Well, the thing that struck me the most about his role as Mr. Jordan is that he was never without a smile. One might be horrified by the situation that has unfolded, or even the fact that his job is essentially a gatekeeper of the afterlife, but not him. He's as calm as can be, smiling away, and even has the look of a proud papa as Joe finally gets what is going on. What did you think of him? Personally, I just love how casual Mr. Jordan speaks of acquiring another body and just telling Joe Pendleton that it's just really no big deal to obtain another as if it's just a skin covering. Again, he just does it so coolly. And Mr. Jordan is, in my opinion, a purveyor of cadavers and a corpse collector, if you will. Yes, totally. He mentions it. It's just like donning an overcoat. No big deal. Another moment I quite enjoyed was when they visited the home of Mr. Farnsworth. Mr. Jordan casually flips through sheet music just resting on the piano and simply states, they're drowning him in the bathtub, as if he's just announcing that he's hungry for a sandwich. Yes. Is he dead? No. Gonna die, though. Mm-hmm. Sick, huh? No, not really. He has a slightly rundown condition. Uh-oh. I get it. Playboy type. Wine, women, and song. Ruins his health. Fine body you want to make me a present of. Guy drinks himself into an early grave. Oh, no, he didn't. He's just slightly run down. He's going to die, that's all. He's being murdered, Joe. Murdered? Is it going on right now? Yes. Right here in this house? Mm-hmm. Who's doing it? His wife, and the man she's in love with, Farnsworth's confidential secretary. 
Nice people you want me to meet. How they killing it? They're drowning him in the bathtub. Holy cow. That was a quite memorable scene to me as well. Again, I, I just love how calm he is in speaking about everything from murder to corpses. And he is very confident in that he knows he will find Joe another body. You just need to give him time. And even as he mentions later on, a superb specimen will come Joe's way. I could not help but think while watching the movie that everyone really needs a Mr. Jordan, or for that matter, a Claude-type individual in their life. Someone to remind them that it's all right, it's okay, and that everything will work out. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. He always tells Joe everything will work out. But he's also not shy to tell Joe the truth. Such as when Joe mentions being in the pink for the 70th time, and Mr. Jordan says, that is becoming a most obnoxious color, Joe. Don't mention it again. Thank you, I was thinking the same thing. So it's also good to have a friend be honest about when you're being obnoxious. Oh yes. Again, completely agree. In doing some research, I learned that Claude would not just memorize his own lines, but he would commit to memory the entire script, which I found to be rather interesting. I feel that this probably helped him deliver some of his great reactions, in particular his delivery with his eyes. What do you think? Oh, I didn't know that. That is really interesting. I can barely commit my new phone number to memory but it does make sense and his reactions are always so great i concur i think he really loved his career as an actor and he was quoted as saying at one point often we secretly like to do the very things we discipline ourselves against isn't that true well here in the movies i can be as mean as wicked as i want to and all without hurting anybody look at that lovely girl i just shot her he must have been so fun to work with. Mm -hmm. So you know who else was a fan of our friend Claude? Who? Ghost Connection! Betty Davis. And in her book, This and That, which I have been meaning to read actually for quite some time, she revealed that he was actually her favorite co-star, and they ended up sharing the screen together four times over the course of their careers. I mean, imagine grabbing a drink with those two. Wouldn't that be thrilling? Now that would be a fun night out. I would love to go for tacos and get a pitcher of Margs with them. Yeah. I just think it would be amazing. My father was an incredible actor by the name of Claude Rains. He and Betty Davis were very good friends. She once sent for me after he had died and said she wanted me to come to the set where she was working to talk about my father. And you didn't say no to Betty Davis. I've never been needed before. Well, I'm crazy, but if you promise to behave yourself. But you're only on probation. Remember what it says in the Bible. The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. How does it feel to be the Lord? Not so very wonderful since the free will bill was passed. Too little power. <laughs> so I went to the set and um, she closed the door to her dressing room and she said, now we're going to talk about Claude. And for about an hour and a half, she just told stories about my father. 
and I'd heard most of the stories, but it was fascinating. She was crazy about him, and he was crazy about her, although according to both of them, she wanted more than he was willing to give. Job, do you realize I've known you only two months, and that I practically know nothing about you at all? Were you poor? I have no idea how poor. But the relationship went on for a very long time, and whenever she had trouble with a husband, she would come and stay on the farm, sometimes for weeks. My father could be intimidating, and Betty told me that she was frightened of him. The first time she worked with him, he shot her a glare, and she thought, oh, my God. <laughs> but they became good friends. Unlike Betty, I'm not quite sure if Joan Crawford was a fan. And I bring her up because they often, you know, people bring them up together. Sure. I stumbled upon this ridiculous story in which Joan invited Claude's daughter, Jennifer, to a birthday party to celebrate Joan's daughter, Christina. And apparently Joan informed Claude's wife that Jennifer could wear denim jeans to the soiree. And when the child arrived, Joan said, nice to meet you, and now you may leave, due to her attire. And like, I could totally see that happening. (laughs) Apparently before Jennifer did leave, she did manage to see Christina's elaborate and extensive doll collection. A collection that no one, of course, was ever allowed to play with or touch. But I feel not all was lost on that day. You know, somehow this story does not surprise me (laughs) in the slightest. I sincerely hope that the next time I'm invited to see your extensive doll collection, however, that you will be truthful about the dress code. Oh, of course, of course. I I think Joan was just having a little bit of fun there. Something else I learned that I found quite interesting was that Claude loved to farm. And actually, right here in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, which is not too far from Philadelphia, he had a farm. And he became what he referred to as a gentleman farmer. And he and his family would churn butter, they had chickens, he would plow the fields, and they even had a veggie garden. And apparently during many of his breaks on film sets, he would often be found reading about farming. And I love learning things like this about different actors, like how Orson Welles was into magic. Yeah, I love that too. So imagine the sort of meal that could be prepared between the two of them. Claude could provide the vegetables and the butter, and Orson could cook the meal using magic. I think it's quite important to have hobbies outside of one's work, so I do love hearing about that. Yes, as do I. Again, that would be another event that I would love to attend, having dinner and magic. Compliments of Claude and Orson. Lovely evening. Yeah. In reading about the end of his life, I found that Claude eventually did move to a place called Sandwich, New Hampshire, which that just seems like an amazing town. (laughs) He did spend his final days there, and I was sad to learn that he started working on a memoir, but unfortunately it went uncompleted, for he died May 30th, 1967. Yep, that's right. Rains died from cirrhosis of the liver. He had an abdominal hemorrhage, 
in Laconia on May 30th, 1967, at the age of 77. And as his daughter said, and just like most actors, he died waiting for his agent to call. And he was buried at the Red Hill Cemetery in New Hampshire. That makes me so sad, like knowing that he was just like waiting at the phone. Mm-hmm. I would have called Claude. Yeah, definitely. It is sad, but I am glad that he got to do so much in his life. Oh, definitely. I mean, he he definitely had a filled life and left behind so many wonderful films for us to watch. Being that Claude was so distinguished and sophisticated, I was not at all shocked to learn that he designed his own tombstone, which read, all things once are things forever, soul once living lives forever. I don't know about you, but I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to put on mine, but it quite pleased me to learn Claude and I had several similarities, especially in thinking about death. Hmm, well, that is interesting. And I have to agree with you and with Claude that a tombstone quote is very important. I wonder if that quote means that Claude is really here walking around, donning a different overcoat, so to speak. So, I have a question for you. Okay. So what would be the thing you would do to convince a friend it was really you in a different body or a different overcoat? Oh, I love this question. Hmm. I think the easiest thing would be to show them my extensive doll collection. Okay, I'll keep my eye out. I'll keep my eye out in the future. But now I would like to know what you would do. Well, you'll just have to wait and see. Well, chap, it is getting late, and it might be best to grab the blankie and tuck Claude in. Okay, nighty-night, Claudikins. Good night, Claude. Until we meet again. And now... On with the show. Welcome back, my goblins and ghouls. I hope you enjoyed the brief intermission to the morgue. We return for the conclusion of my examination of Here Comes Mr. Jordan, starring the corpse of interest, Robert Montgomery. With Mr. Farnsworth missing, it has now been decided that a boxer named Murdoch, who has been climbing the ranks since Joe Pendleton's passing, will take on the match that Farnsworth intended to fight against Gilbert. Max, though, is still trying to get to the bottom of all of this tomfoolery. But I'm going to crack this case. And you better call in Houdini. Miss Logan, you said it was approximately 8.30 when you left Mr. Farnsworth that night? Yes. And you brought some papers for him to sign? Yes, for my father. Hey, Joe. Joe, are you here? Oh, Joe. And you haven't heard from Mr. Farnsworth since, by telephone or in any way? No. Come on, Joe, where are you? The case seems to be getting nowhere, causing Max to become a bit distracted, at which time he notices the saxophone setting atop a piano. Max then appears to be going a bit batty as he tries to explain to the group, which includes the detectives, Mrs. Farnsworth, Betty Logan, and, of course, the secretary, 
what Joe had told him about swapping bodies. Mr. Jordan and Joe listen on, and with some mental telepathy, Joe manages to get Max to quiet down and turn on the radio to listen to the fight between Murdoch and Gilbert. It is at this time it is overheard that Murdoch is shot during the match, which in turn causes Mr. Jordan and Joe to leave and head to the arena. He's down! Murdoch's down! He finally dropped! I wish I could finish that fight for him. You can, Joe. You mean I can take Murdoch's? We've just got time to make it. Come. Well, my goblins and ghouls, I think you know where this story is headed. Joe becomes Murdoch, and with Max's tip, the police discover the body of Mr. Farnsworth in the freezer. But what about Betty Logan? Well, my little crypt dwellers, I think you will just have to watch the movie yourself to find out. Mwah. So long, champ. Here Comes Mr. Jordan was made despite reservations from the Columbia chief president, Harry Cohn. It was the writer, Sidney Buckman, that convinced him to take a chance on the production. There was talks of making a sequel to this film entitled Hell Bent for Mr. Jordan, but this never saw the light of day as they could not assemble the original cast. Although, some of the cast, including Claude Rains, Evelyn Keyes, and James Gleason, would reprise their roles in a luxe radio broadcast of the story co-starring Cary Grant. Inevitably, many ideas would go on to be recycled in the sequel of sorts, Down to Earth, a 1947 flick starring Rita Hayworth. Coincidentally, this film would also be helmed by the Here Comes Mr. Jordan director, Alexander Hall, Edward Everett Horton and James Gleason would also reprise their roles. Who knows, goblins and ghouls? This film may be uncovered on a future crypt. Mwah. Here Comes Mr. Jordan paved the way for other afterlife films. The original 1938 stage play by Harry Siegel, entitled Heaven Can Wait, was adapted to form the story of the film. Later on, there would be a film by Ernst Lubitsch that went by the same title, Heaven Can Wait, but would be based on a different play entitled Birthday. I was surprised to learn that despite their on-screen chemistry, Robert Montgomery and Evelyn Keyes did not get along during the production of Here Comes Mr. Jordan. He was known to tease her incessantly about the fact that she was engaged in an affair with a married man. Sounds rather childish to me. Here Comes Mr. Jordan would go on to be nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, Best Writing, and Cinematography. It ended up taking an Oscar home for its screenplay. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you're interested in checking out this movie, it is available from the Criterion Collection and contains numerous features. This is how I viewed the movie. However, it is also available to watch on archive.org. I will include a link to the film in the show notes. In my next episode, I will continue the series of Heavenly Mistakes by examining a favorite film of mine, the 1946 Powell and Pressburger motion picture, A Matter of Life and Death. I will dig up the corpse of David Niven and also be joined by my fellow classic coroner, Vampira's cousin, 
Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers to autopsy character corpse, Kim Hunter. Hope you tune in. Until then, please make sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes and give us a rating and review to help other goblins and ghouls find the show. If it is a kind review, I may even read it on air. So take note, crypt dwellers. A raving review may keep you from finding an early grave. Mwah! So log into iTunes to leave your own review or send us an email. Don't be a stranger. I want to know what you think. Drop your favorite little gravedigger a line at cinematiccrypt at gmail.com. If you have a suggestion for the show or a corpse you want me to dig up, let me know. You can also reach me on Twitter and Instagram at cinematiccrypt or send me a letter via postal mail. I will always write back and include a personalized epitaph. You can reach me at Attention Movie John, and again, that's Movie, J-A-W-N, P.O. Box 20172, Philadelphia, PA, 19145. Shout out to my Canadian film pal and fellow classic coroner, Dr. Ashley Jane Carruthers, for providing and creating a lot of the spooky tunes you hear on this program. Also, thanks to fellow movie genre, the Hollywood hunk, Hugo Marmucci, for my rad cinematic crypt logo. And as a reminder, if you can't get enough of my soothing voice, make sure to check out I Saw in a Movie, a weekly advice podcast that goes to the cinema for the answer that I co-host with my film pal, Ryan Silverstein. And because I don't like to sleep, you can find your favorite little gravedigger on yet another program with my fellow filmmaking pal, Katie McBrown, on the show entitled Best Friends Forever. Each episode, we invite you to our slumber party, which we gab about a flick featuring the heartthrob of the month. All of these shows are part of the Movie John podcast network, which you can find more information about at moviejohn.com under MJ Podcasts. This is where you can also subscribe to our quarterly print movie zine. Our spring 2021 issue is available for pre-order now. This quarter's theme is foreign to me. Gain a new perspective within the pages of Movie John. Available for purchase now at moviejohn.com shop. So long, farewell, I'll be just saying goodnight. I hate to go and leave this pretty sight. So long, farewell, I'll be just saying adieu. Adieu, adieu, to you and you and you. It is now time to close the coffin. Here I leave you to rest with my latest epitaph, my tombstone quote, compliments of Joe Pendleton. You can't palm off a second raider on me. You gotta remember, I was in the pink. After a restful sleep, I may decide to make a return amongst the living. And this shall serve as a reminder to Mr. Jordan. I don't want just any old overcoat. Goodbye. Film pals. Ah!